You are listening to Travel for a Loop, a storyteller's podcast where me, your host, Ryan Bedell, listens to a story about traveling from a special guest. The story can be funny, sad, enlightening, outrageous about human connection or any other combination of things, but all the stories are real experiences from real people. I have absolutely no idea what's coming, so I will be just as surprised as you are. If you're listening and know someone who may want to advertise on the podcast, reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or email and let me know who to get in touch with. I want to thank the band Varsity for allowing me to use their song Circa 2002 as the theme song for the podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Bedell, based in New York, New York, and this is episode 19. Today we have Danica Harutian. Am I getting that right? Yes. Okay, perfect. Harutian here in studio. Danica is graduating with her master's degree in international education this December at NYU. Although she calls California home, she's also lived or studied abroad in Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, Armenia, the Dominican Republic, and Lebanon. She identifies as a third culture kid. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show today and taking the time. Thank you. Particularly after a long day of work, it's tough to like sit down and expel more energy once five o'clock rolls around. But yeah, no, this is great. <laughs> I am a listener of your podcast and many podcasts, so it's exciting to be on one for Honored. the first time. <laughs> oh, this is the first one? To be yeah, for oh, myself. Wow. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Well I'm honored that you've chosen ours to be first. So for the first bit here to open up, I wanted to ask. So you say that you self-identify as a third culture kid. So for anyone listening who might not be totally clear on what you mean by that, I was hoping you could just expand a little bit. Totally. So I didn't always know the term growing up, obviously, but I think the official definition is uh, someone who grew up in a place that neither of your parents are from, and it's a place that your citizenship is not in. Um, so, and, and during significant, I think, childhood development years. So that's a, a textbook definition. Um, but I think my mom came across the term at some point when we were living in California later in my, or maybe like high school time. But essentially, I identified that way because my dad is Armenian-American, my mom is Filipino-American, and for six years of my childhood, early childhood, I lived in Saudi Arabia. So that was um, obviously impactful in my life in ways I didn't know at the time because I was so young. Totally. It was just like one of the neighborhoods I lived in as, as a child, but it, yeah, it has made a huge difference in my passions and how yeah. I view culture and everything. So Armenian American. And then you said, what was the other one? Sorry. My mom's Filipina. Filipina. Yeah. Okay. So were both of them. So you grew up in the U S besides Saudi Arabia or did you ever grow up at all in either of those places? No. So all, the rest of my childhood was in the U S in okay. California and my dad grew up in the U S my mom came to the U S when she was 20. Okay. Very cool. So um, would you say that you're, and this is just a curiosity question more than anything, would you say that your choice of career path and in international education is sort of a reflection of that upbringing in some ways? Yeah. And I, it, it's nice to reflect on that now because, um, I think earlier in my life, it was more of a confusion of, oh my gosh, I identify with all these different things what does that make me or what does that combine into like in one identity, but it doesn't have to be one identity. And it's been 
an added strength, I guess, as I've gone into this field because of relating to different people of all backgrounds and enjoying conversations about culture and intercultural relations. So yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when you are trying to navigate identities within yourself, it probably makes it easier to empathize, sympathize, be a resource for people who are going through the same thing. So yeah, that's good. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Second question. Uh, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about each of those places you lived or studied in and how you ended up there. Sure. Um, I think I'm going to go chronologically, but then I have a little bit of a longer story with Lebanon and Tunisia. Okay. So as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia was six years of my childhood. My dad taught English and um, I don't remember a lot. It was age two to eight. Okay. But for a time, that was the longest place my family had lived. We moved around a lot. So um, for a time, it felt like, oh, that's where I grew up. Yeah. You know, until I got a little bit older. Um, But I remember like a very classic American kind of neighborhood childhood there. And then going to an international school for kindergarten and first grade. Um, we did study some Arabic, even from those early grades. Um, and I thought it was normal at the time, but there were students from all over the world in my class. So again, I think that has influenced me as I've gotten older. Um, yeah, I they Saudi Arabia just released a tourist visa or a new type of tourist Mm. visa. So it would be interesting to ever think about going back as an adult, but no plans so far to go, but it's certainly a complicated place. I don't want to want to stop your chronology right away, but I'm curious, would you say that in what ways would you say that that six years in Saudi Arabia shaped you? Um, as I grew up and was in school, I really enjoyed learning about the Middle East. And there are so many different angles in doing that, um, like religion, politics, culture. Um, For a while in high school, one of my goals was, oh, I want to study Arabic. And I knew that, but I didn't know what kind of profession to go into. And I ended up studying in college, Middle East studies and anthropology. And I was so happy to learn that that was a major. I remember like a high school counselor found it online when we were looking at colleges and I got so excited. So it was a great fit. Um, which I guess leads me to, I studied abroad my junior year in undergrad and that was Lebanon and Tunisia. It was supposed to be just Lebanon. And I went to the American university of Beirut in the capital of Lebanon, um, fall 2013 and, you know, as you know, we prepare a lot for study abroad. You get super invested in your plans. And um, granted, I think anywhere in the Middle East, North Africa region, you have to be prepared for things changing. Yeah. Um, and I didn't expect um, for to change my program, but I was only in Lebanon for like three weeks and... Um, I enrolled in classes. I remember moving into my dorm. I was with one of my best friends from my home institution. Um, and there were just like, there's a ton of stuff happening politically with Syria next door and the state department travel warnings got raised. And, um, 
yeah, the story is definitely like there's challenging parts and then there's funny parts. But at that moment, I was so sad to leave that my home institution wanted us to, and it was just risky, like otherwise safety and financially, even though I never felt unsafe personally, um, it was a hard decision. And then we thankfully got transferred to a different study abroad program that was still open and would accept us like three weeks into the semester in Tunisia. And there's just so much that I don't remember. And <laughs> I don't even, yeah, it's not that long ago at this point, but... A couple of years at least, right? Six years yeah, ago. I mean, it's kind of long ago in the sure. scheme of things. That experience also impacted my decision to study my master's program because years later I was thinking, oh, who helped me at that time? Like who coordinated everything? And there were multiple people. There was someone at my home institution. There was someone on the ground there in Beirut with the international student office. There were, of course, the new program directors in Tunisia. And then anyone I had interacted with, I guess, in the process. I was like, what's their job? What do they do? A lot of moving parts, for sure. Yeah. Um, And they've all been helpful in my, like, as mentors or just resources. Um, since then. But when I got to Tunisia, it was like complete shock because it was a program of, I think, seven people, if I'm remembering correctly. And again, I was with one of my best friends. Uh, The Arabic dialect was different from what I'd studied. I was kind of upset, but um, it's such a beautiful place. I know you've been there. Yeah, It's so beautiful. And remind me, you were in Tunis, right? Yeah, I was in, um, the program was in a, a little beach town next to Tunis okay. called Sidi Bou Said. Okay. Um, and I was with a host family and I really, looking back, liked the program content and everything. Um, I got super sick though. <laughs> and Have we talked about how I got sick too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's just like one specific memory stands out. That to me epitomizes how weird it was. Yeah. <laughs> and one of our excursions, our program, like within the semester short trips, was leaving the capital area to go a little bit south in the country. And we went to some great sites, and um, there was a group with us from the School for International Training in France who came with us. So it was this new group of people. It was fun all around. But we got to the island of Jerba. It's a small island. Okay. And it's actually where, if you're familiar with the the Odyssey. Yeah. Um, it's supposedly where the lotus eaters Interesting. were. Huh. Like when Odysseus was on his journey. Yeah. He, they, you know, go to this island and the lotus eaters are welcoming, but they feed them lotus, and then you forget everything about wanting to leave the island, Yeah, I think is the story. Um, so it's kind of m- mystical and interesting and beautiful, and I got so sick. We ate mm. some something. Not lotus. <laughs> <laughs> Not lotus. Um, but I had been sick. I had stomach problems or whatever for a while, but on that trip, since we're like in t- short-term hotels, uh, 
it, I don't know, it hit me really badly. And then I wasn't the only one. So at some point on this island in this hotel, there were like four of us quarantined in one hotel room and it just became the like sick room. And we literally would take turns puking (laughs) and going back to bed. And like then three days later when I was a little more like had more of my whereabouts to me and before we had to drive back to Tunis, I remember catching up with some of the other students who were healthy that entire time. Like, what did you do? How was it? Yeah. And I just, I had missed, you know, whatever drama and whatever things they did. <laughs> but it was just so... Probably a good thing to miss drama. I mean, yeah. not that you want to be throwing up, of course, but yeah. nonetheless. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> yeah, that is intense. <laughs> so I feel like I'm missing one. You got, sorry, you got Armenia and the Dim- Dominican Republic as well. Yes. And then I recently went back to Lebanon, which was great after not having the experience I wanted six years ago. Um, Armenia, after undergrad, I went there for a year, about a year with the Fulbright program. So I was teaching English. um, And I'm so grateful for that year. I had, um, I would say little exposure to an Arme- what I would call an Armenian community, even though I grew up in California. Um, so going there, really, I got to connect with local Armenians, which can be a very different population than the diaspora Armenians. But I got to work with local co-teachers, and then I met a lot of Armenian-Americans and Armenians from all over the world who are also like doing some type of program in Armenia at the time. Um, and I really, yeah, I felt like I made a home there cause it was an academic year. Um, I learned a lot about teaching. It took a while to get a hang of things <laughs> and language, um, skills. It was the first time I had, had, um, one-on-one language classes mm. in being in the country. So an immersive experience for that long. Yeah. So I did learn fast. I think I listened a lot at work, especially even if I couldn't say anything. And then over time, it really was, you know, it's true. Everything they say about language learning and being immersive, it definitely, definitely makes the difference. Yeah. Did you, uh, well, I assume at the very least you grew up hearing Armenian a little bit, if, if that's your dad's background, or did he make an effort to speak to you in that language at all? He actually doesn't speak it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. I think if he did speak it, it he would totally have made the effort. But um, he, my great-grandparents came to the East oh, Coast and then the West Coast. Um, and I think the language had stopped with my grandparents. Gotcha. Yeah. What about Filipino on the mom's side? She speaks it. She speaks it, but did she pass any on to you? No. no? <laughs> some, some. She tried a little bit. I think I was a little too old and stubborn. Gotcha. When she tried. But yeah, that's the thing. Like when your parents are from two different places, English is the common language. And then it's, yeah. (laughs) Imagine like, so even if you weren't learning the language at home, learning the language and having this connection to a part of you must have been pretty cool. Oh, yeah. 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 It's not technically the dialect my family would have known, but... um, it, yeah, had extra motivation, I guess, as yeah. a language student. 
It's pretty cool. And the alphabets are hard, so I needed that motivation. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, also with the Arabic learning, like I I would love to learn it. I think it's so cool and I love how it sounds spoken, mm-hmm. but it's just like so beyond my level of comprehension. And that's how I felt about Korean when I lived there too. Like if you threw a, a romance language in front of me, I think I'd at least be able to get some words from it, that sort of thing. But like Mm -hmm. the different alphabets, the different symbols, like it all is just a totally, my brain is not there. (laughs) I'm sure you could if you had the time, I think, or lived in a place where you kind of had, or forced to learn it. But yeah, I think um, now that I don't use Armenian as much, the first thing that I'm losing is like the reading in the alphabet but I'm still better at listening and speaking so um yeah I hope to improve my language skills still totally Uh, time is the issue not sure when yeah it's just a matter of finding the hours in the day (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair exactly and then the Dominican Republic is the last one on your list that was as part of my master's here I was very lucky to go um, in a short-term study abroad in January. And it was a class that continued into the spring semester. But um, it's an elective I took, and it was in the teaching and learning department. And we studied essentially, I can't remember the exact title of the class, but like multicultural education with um, bilingual education, something That's like that. Cool. And we got to visit a variety of schools, um, and take Spanish. And, um, it was interesting. I liked being with a lot of master students who are studying to be teachers. Yeah. So like different crowd than you're used to as far as the degree, right? Yeah. In some ways, I think it was really great to have the mixture and anyone who works in education should really get to know teachers' experiences no matter where, in what context you're working. And I think, yeah, having them as classmates, it just was like a a nice, uh, diverse perspectives. Yeah, I think one of the things that stuck out to me is, and I don't know if this is true everywhere. Maybe it's just been the places that I've been. But it's funny that you mentioned that because there seems to me to be a disconnect, particularly at the higher ed level and probably also elsewhere. I've heard stories about friends that teach that have issues with like a principal or something. But Mm -hmm. it's the lack of understanding of the other person's experience. Like the administrative person has been trained to do administration. So they don't know what the faculty is going through. And the faculty has been trained to teach. So they don't know what the administration is doing. And it's like... The left hand's doing one thing and the right hand's doing another thing, but realistically they should be working towards the same goal. So like, yeah, I could see how that'd be pretty valuable moving forward in a career in education to like have that experience sort of of the other side. Yeah, I hope so. And yeah, I always had heard like venting from both sides, mm-hmm. n- depending on who I'm talking to <laughs> always yeah. in any school context yeah. <laughs> or work, I guess. So yeah, it was great to have them have the master students who are going to be teachers as peers. Yeah. Um, and like equalizing us in the classroom. Totally. And then doing something together, which it was the class and all of the yeah. excursions or whatever. But yeah, speaking of, my little sister is about to be 
an elementary school teacher. So wow. it's sweet that within my family, we have that in common too. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. I love it. Well, I have one possibly unfair question and then we can get into your story. Um, the unfair question is, of all of these places that you lived, um, is there anything that stands out? Is there any place that maybe you would like want to go back to at some point? Anywhere that culturally there's cool traditions or things that stood out, just generally? Yeah. Um, Again, well, could I be think an unfair question. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, in general... I mean, I feel like people listening to your podcast know this already, but what I try to get across to people when I'm back in my hometown, for example, or speaking on a more surface level about my travels, I always try to emphasize that the Middle East is so diverse and a great place because that's not always what comes across in the news. Totally. And I had this weird like unique exposure as a kid, not fully understanding the politics of any of it. And then I came back to the U.S. in 2001, and then it was 9-11, and then it was constant conflict from the U.S. part and, and initiated on both sides. So it's complicated. But from being really young, I somehow knew oh, the humans, the people, the regular people who live in Saudi Arabia, for example, are not the same as its government. Or like the people who I'm going to be in class with in Beirut, Lebanon, are not the same as extremists. Like, totally. Obviously. Maybe that sounds really simple, but it's something it I to always said, try I to... Well. Yeah. And then when I came back from Tunisia, I... Um, even though it was a challenging time for me, I remember also saying it was challenging for me because I was sick, not because it wasn't an amazing place with amazing people, you know? So I never wanted negative perceptions to like get furthered because of anything I say. Um, And I hope that as study abroad continues or changes, um, just with all kinds of programs that are out there that more options in the Middle East will be available to students. Um, and security issues are always valid, but I mean, something I hope to work into is like breaking down the barriers and then also making, uh, really safe, organized options available and have students feel prepared and excited and not worried, you know? Well, it's almost like racism in the lack of cultural analysis, which I want to explain with, I'm not just going to throw that out there and not explain, but um, like white people in this country will say, um, I'm from an Irish background. I'm from uh, an Italian background. I'm from a, I don't know, a French background, whatever, German. Um, And it's like they see a white person, but they want to make that distinction. And they're not willing to do the same courtesy for people from the Middle East. Like to them, it's all one culture. It is the Middle East. But anyone who's been there, as you say, or has spent some more time getting to know people who come from that background or live there themselves, realizes like someone from Lebanon is very different than someone from Saudi Arabia. And like there are different traditions, different everything. But honestly, I think 
to a degree, it's racism. People see a hijab or they they see, I don't know, traditional dress or something. And it's like, oh, that's all the same thing. So, like, there's definitely, I think there's definitely a degree of racism there. Yeah. And then lack, lack of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Anyway, um. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So, you've got a story for us. Should we? Yeah. Well, I guess my story was kind of the the Lebanon, Tunisia. Okay. Surprise and the sickness <laughs> on the island, but I can nice totally. To call it a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally elaborate on some Armenian things I think about. Yeah. Um, well, there was big news, and we talked about it in the office recently of the uh, the congressional recognition of the genocide. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. I, yeah, that was a few weeks ago. Yeah. The House recognized the Armenian genocide. And technically, it was not the first time they did so, but um, the it all. I mean, the issue is that the president, no matter the administration, has never recognized it. And then the re- political relations with Turkey are usually prioritized in terms of the repercussions of calling it a genocide. Yeah. But yeah, I am a proud survivor of. I'm a descendant of a survivor um, on my dad's side. And they, all of my great-grandparents' families were from lands that are now in Turkey and um, came to the East Coast in Massachusetts and New Jersey, but a few of them had gone to Syria um, first because basically... If you were surviving, you were like walking through a desert, ended up in Syria, orphans, and whoever helped you along the way. There's actually an amazing, uh, there's a lot of American philanthropy and humanitarian efforts at that time. In World War I, Mm. Americans helped so many Armenians in orphanages Mm. in the Middle East. And so when... Armenian Americans like advocate for the recognition of the genocide. We always point to that as you helped, you acknowledge that it happened. Uh, why can't we just call it what it is now yeah. in present day? Um, and we're very thankful for that humanitarian assistance at that time. Um, yeah. And the, I'm, I'm going to forget which country he was stationed in, but. Henry Morgenthau, who worked, who was, I guess, maybe, yeah, he was the U.S. ambassador to the Ottoman Empire at the time. He has so many, like, primary accounts of what he saw, and that's the State Department. Yeah. And so he also helped a lot, and, yeah, it's just obviously sad and disappointing when someone tries to still deny it, but... The facts are out there. Yeah. <laughs> and mean, and we, like someone like me in my generation, no matter if I'm half Armenian or not, the fact that I'm, like the fact that my family lived where we did and that I exist is literally because they survived. Yeah. You know, so it's undeniable. I just don't get, and it's like, obviously for, in this specific one, there are, there's the political side of it with Turkey and everything, which is just a whole a whole other thing, but like, I don't get how when you see images, when you see the things that happened, when those sites still exist, like how you can say that you don't believe it. It's like the same thing for the Holocaust. Like, 
You just don't quite, there's this weird disconnect in a brain where I don't get how people can like, and it's happening now in our political system um, on total other spheres of things, but Mm -hmm. how you can be presented with evidence, be presented with a fact, and then just sit there and say, no, that's not it. Like, that's not the case. It just blows my mind. Yeah. And that's why we have to believe in the power of education because the more people know, no matter if it's me talking about it or you, who's not Armenian, it's awesome to talk about just so it's out there more. Yeah. Um, Well, I said to you when the the thing with Congress happened last week, I was like, I I didn't know that it wasn't recognized. Like, it blew my mind. It's just so (laughs) crazy. Why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like, in my mind, it's like the U.S. saying, oh, the Holocaust didn't happen. And now in 2019, we're going to go ahead and acknowledge that it happened. Like, where have we been for the last hundred years? It does feel bizarre. Yeah. yeah. It's the same. Like, I don't know. It's just crazy to me. And like, I don't know. I can't really fathom. Again, I'm just stuck on how you can. It's a fact. There's no way around it. Like, there's a fact. And we people still sit there and they're like, no. <laughs> yeah. There's a, it's not just, it's not just lack of awareness. In some places, it's it's very purposeful. Totally. Like, I guess, censorship um, or, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Willful ignorance. Mm. Yeah. And then, um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, when the Holocaust was called a genocide and the Nuremberg trials happened, the, I think, Jewish lawyer who made the name or made the word genocide used the facts of what happened to the Armenians in order to make up the word. Yeah. Like, it's... That's crazy. And this is a little more than 100 years ago, but um, not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And... It only adds to, you know, there's, there's some people say it's long ago. Why, why do we still care? But you have to recognize something like that in order to prevent more things like that from happening. Totally. And just to send us into a pit of despair, like genocides are happening right now around the world and have happened since and will continue to happen. And like, it's just... I think in an ideal world, we could say we learn from these sort of things. And obviously some people do, like, I think in general, obviously, but like, I think you could argue there's genocide going on in China right now. Like there are obviously like all kinds of crazy things going on around the world. And it's just depressing as shit to think like, oh man, we have these examples throughout history of where it's gotten so bad. And like, we still don't. We don't intervene. People don't talk about it. People don't raise their voices. It's just like, again, send send myself into a pit of despair. Yeah, the news can be really dark. Yeah. (laughs) And I think most Armenians are pretty politically engaged in the sense of drawing connections. So if this, if similar things happen to other minorities or groups, then you know, we are are quick to call it what it is and try to bring awareness as well. Um, but yeah, and also for my entire year in Armenia, um, 
April is a very special month when people uh, commemorate the genocide. But my experience there in the country, you know, there's so much um, changing in Armenia in civil society and with the students I worked with that it was so exciting, of course, to learn about like what young Armenians in the country it is today yeah. talk about and and what issues they're interested in and how me, an American Armenian, can connect or how we differ. And, you know, there's just so much change happening. Totally. And so it's always exciting to also look ahead. And like we say the phrase sometimes, we don't, we're not just survivors. We want to be thriving. Yes. Yeah. Thrive, not just survive. Totally. And I mean, <laughs> you said something that stuck out to me and it's that the news in general can be really depressing and that is totally true. And I'm just, uh, I, sometimes I focus on that moral of the story, but like, <laughs> I think, um, I think it, it is very important to focus on the present and what good things are happening as well. But I think like it has to go both ways. Right. So I think even if something hurts to talk about or hurts to discuss, you need to force yourself to do it. And I remember, um, I went to Bosnia a few years ago and, um, and was, went to museums, was speaking with locals about, um, the war in the Balkans in the nineties. And like, I could tell you, I think it's important to recognize both sides. Like, I think everyone should go to Bosnia right now. I think it's the coolest country and like, there's so much cool stuff going on there right now, but I don't know that you can necessarily talk in an informed way about that without recognizing that a, the nineties is, I was born in the nineties. So, I mean, it's not that long ago, but also like so much of that tragedy colors the current society in a way. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I just ramble. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, that makes sense. And I think, there's more awareness among, I guess, our generation who travel that you have to be, know the context into which you're traveling and also try to travel ethically. All these interesting conversations are really exciting. Yeah. And it's in, you know, all these like tours and websites, not just in the educational context. And it's cool to see like what, guides and resources we can try to use and that people care. Totally. I don't know about you, but I noticed a difference even in a few years. Uh, The first time I went abroad, I was 16. That sounds right. So I was very, very lucky going abroad at a a really young age. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, at the time being like baffled by some other American tourists, like just people who like, and recently too you see it from time to time but like back then it really stood up to me stood out to me that american tourists like were just like loud and obnoxious or like i remember uh the story we always told like there was a guy in a restaurant who like did just the classic worst trope of an american tourist ever where like it's like why don't you speak english and it's like dude you're not in an english-speaking country that's why they don't speak english and I just remember being really like sort of, I loved the trip and it was great. Obviously I continued to go abroad after that, but it really stuck out to me and Mm -hmm. then lived in Italy for a few years and would see the same thing. But like you said, I think it's encouraging it and maybe it is our generation and I don't know. My first thought was going to be that maybe just times change in general and like it's a focus, but also it could be young people. I don't know. 
I don't know. And I, and I also could very well be in a bubble because <laughs> like the two of us, many people that surround us travel a lot and yeah, think true. about these things. Um, interestingly, I, out of my siblings, I mean, we were raised the same way and I'm the only one really interested in the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> so there's always differences. And I think it's a skill that I have had to grow, which is how to communicate about travel yeah. and then tell people, no matter how close you are to the person, like having an experience abroad and then coming back and talking about it and changing how you say it, depending on who you're talking to, is something totally. I have had to develop because it is so hard to express sometimes. Yeah. And I think I've talked about it before, but like, there's always sort of this weird, empty feeling when you try to talk to someone else about it because you sort of feel like they're never going to get it. Mm-hmm. Like, no, and to a degree, no one will. Like, no one will know exactly what your experience in Armenia was like or the, the tragedy of Tunisia that was not entirely <laughs> tragedy. Um, but it's just like there's – it's a, a bad catch-22 in a way because you want to talk about it. It's affected you so profoundly and all you want to do is talk about it sometimes. But also like mm-hmm. there is no fulfilling that need because you can't express what you fully need to. Or at least that's how I feel. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still figuring that out for sure. And in professional settings, like how much, if I was to talk about Armenia with you, I would regret not saying that I'm also Armenian. Yeah. <laughs> but in other contexts, like the person doesn't have to know I'm Armenian for what I say to be valid. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? And especially when it comes to causes or advocacy, like you... Some people think it's more valid and trustworthy to say that the message is coming from like an insider or a person who's part of that group. And then other people would say, just speak factually, doesn't matter what your identity is. And so that's been super confusing, but I, I think about it a lot because I want, obviously, like if my goal is to get a message across, you have to read the room <laughs> and figure out what's going to be most effective. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's a an issue I do not have to navigate, so <laughs> it's it's got to be tough. Yeah, it's well, it's Mentally confusing. Yeah, yeah, confusing. But at the end of the day, like all these experiences, I just feel really lucky. And my next trip is to the Philippines with nice. my mom, When's and I've happening? never been as an adult, so that's really important too. That's awesome. End <laughs> uh, of. January through February. Okay. So you'll go get some warm weather? Yep. Nice. <laughs> Escape New York winter once again. <laughs> That's great. You know, I and <laughs> obviously the Philippines has lots of things going on there too, but I have never met someone who went to the Philippines and didn't love everything about it. Like just cool. loved it. So hopefully that'll be a good one. That's good to hear. Yeah. I'm For the listeners, I have a huge smile on my face right now because... <laughs> Um, my, yeah, I have a huge Filipino family and I'm just so excited to be around some of them and eat food together and get more of a context of how my mom grew up only having had talked about it or as a kid being there a few times, but I really don't remember much. So, um, yeah, I'm so excited. (laughs) It's funny. I, uh, what stuck out to me was you saying food and like, 
I was thinking about this recently, and this is a total tangent, completely random, but like across cultures for, and I think in the scheme of things, I've been pretty lucky in the amount of cultures I've been able to interact with, even on just like a surface observer sort of level. And like with every culture, there's some sort of community to food. Mm-hmm. Like it's something about eating that brings people together, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. And like, or drinking. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> drinking too, often together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like, it's an odd, I don't know what the right word is even, but it's an odd concept to me that it's just like, it's something that's so basic to us. Like we have to eat to survive and it would like, it's an odd, weird psychological something in our brain that is like, Hey, I want to do this with other people. I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to know the biology to share behind a that. Meal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And the, the cultural differences of how long you sit at yeah. the table and talk and Weird, all of that. things. <laughs> the order in which you eat things varies across cultures. Like yeah. such weird, tiny things, but like across all those differences, it's like get together, have a meal. That's how we bond. Totally. <laughs> My brother still makes fun of me for one encounter in the Philippines and I was eight at the time, but um, can you really, can that be held against you? If you're <laughs> it's just a silly thing. We, my grandparents over there, um, used to have a farm and as a kid we had visited and beautiful, like banana trees, guava, every, everything. Um, and my memory from that time, you know, maybe it's much bigger than I'm thinking, but as a kid, we would like wander around and I was my brother's little sidekick or whatever. And we would walk around an adventure and there's just so much to see. And there was one area where like the pigs and chicken were. And one morning we did our typical walk, like the same thing we'd always done, spending time together. And the pig was being butchered like in front of my eyes (laughs) and I um was shocked even though I knew like I knew where meat came from we ate meat it's different yeah and um they there's a great way of um I don't even roasting roasting a pig it's called lechon and it's basically when it's cooked and presented it's still like the entire pig on a stick and um Everyone loves it. And that day, I think, um, I don't, I don't know what, I mean, I ran away, basically. I ran away from like that place in the farm that my brother and I were. And I think they like found me later somewhere. And then on uh, that day at lunch, some of that pork was being served and I was so sad. And my brother was like, yeah, this is yummy. <laughs> Rubbing it in your face. And, uh, Such a brother. <laughs> <laughs> and then for years after that, I don't know how many, but for a while I did not eat pork or I, I did a little. Mm-hmm. And it was just like... <laughs> I just couldn't do it. And yeah. and now I eat it sometimes, but it's not my favorite meat or whatever. Every, but Every time you eat it, you're brought back to that moment. <laughs> now it's just kind of like, remember when. Yeah. But I mean, I've debated becoming a vegetarian before, but this time going to the Philippines, at least I'm like prepared. I've grown. I yeah. can handle if I see something like that. <laughs> totally. I've debated being a vegetarian too, which anyone who, listening who knows me will be like... Ha, yeah, right. But (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know. It's, it's, it makes practical sense. It's healthy. Yeah, it's environmentally. Environmentally friendly. Great. Yeah. yeah. I've been listening to some things, and I think even if you just um, lower your meat intake, especially with the system here in the U.S., then it's going to be a better footprint if you yeah. in, instead of eating it like even once a day or something like meat just for dinner or meat twice a week like that makes yeah. if everyone did that it would make a huge change you don't have to give it up indeed the yeah. travel podcast we'll becomes see. ryan's vegan environmentally friendly podcast. i don't know <laughs> if i could ever do that <laughs> vegan i don't think so vegan would be tough yeah it's like and then like, I know friends who've done it for a month or, like, have, have given it a try or whatever, and apparently it's really not that difficult. It's just, like, the mental step of getting mm. getting sort of over what you can and can't eat. Yeah, the um, habits. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I think we both are capable of doing it. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Calling a spade a spade, huh? <laughs> yeah. Fair. Fair. Well, um, as a listener, you know what comes next. What? At the end of every episode, the floor is opened so that you can say whatever you want to say that can either be travel-related or not travel-related, but message that the world needs to hear. So, hmm. Or it can just be a random whatever you <laughs> feel like saying. It doesn't have to be profound. I will say <laughs> I will be looking for a great job coming in a few months. <laughs> if, if anyone's, anyone's intrigued by me um, and my stories. But... Yeah, I'm hoping to. We'll put up the resume. On live the here in New York for a bit longer, um, and yeah, I mean, I started this episode, I guess, talking about my parents. So I guess I'll say I'm just so glad that, however, they raised me and their mixture of things and cultures has just been like something I'm always grateful for. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say it worked out pretty well. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well. Anything else you want to add before we cut things off? I think we're good. (laughs) Moment of truth. Um, Cool. Well, it's pretty clear at this point that I'm not doing this every other week. I think that message has (laughs) has gotten out there. So there will be an episode 20. Um, Who knows when, but it'll be coming. And Maybe... um, 2020 or maybe right yeah, before yeah i'm taking taking my journey i'm leaving yeah. wednesday to go to australia to the other side of the world so exciting richard if you're listening i'm coming <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so it'll probably be december would be my guess but as always everyone thanks for listening danica again thank <laughs> you for taking the time and thank sharing you. your stories this has been great to chat i am honored to have you on <laughs> and uh yeah we'll be back with the next one so thanks for listening and have a good one you both had a